This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. would like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We reach the end of the book and conclude our series of studies in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, it's page 559 in the Pew Bibles. While you're turning there, I do want to just echo what Owen said earlier and invite you to return tonight to hear from Mark Hartzell. Uh, Mark is with Harvest USA. Uh, that is a ministry you need to know about. For some of you, because it's on Sunday night, you didn't give it the second thought that you might possibly be here tonight. Give it a second thought. Come tonight and hear what Mark has to say. This is a ministry that is in the trenches uh, in our society. Uh, it is one that is doing some great work, a ministry that is uh, proclaiming the grace of Christ to those struggling with sexual brokenness in its various forms. And uh, I think you want to know about Harvest and hear what Mark has to say. So I encourage you to return this evening to hear from him. This morning we'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray.
Father, this is your word and your word and your truth are spiritually discerned. And so we pray for the light and the help of your Holy Spirit as we study this passage this morning. Feed our souls with it and grant us to be able to worship you in the contemplation of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this final chapter in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we find that it takes up three Themes, themes that if you've been with us through the study of this book are not unfamiliar to you. In a sense, the themes themselves are not new. He does uh, touch upon them one last time before he concludes the book. The first theme that he takes up here actually flows from what he has just been talking about in the end of chapter 11, where he says in verse 9 of 11, chapter 11, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Well, as we move into chapter 12, it is related to that, a distinct theme. And the first theme that he takes up here is that of the opportunity of youth. The opportunity of youth. Look at verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before, and he goes on to talk about uh, the difficulties of old age. But remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Now, it helps here if we first of all define youth. Uh, I've known this text to be preached to youth groups or even to children, uh, and certainly it applies to those who are in their childhood years or to those who are in their teen years, because they certainly are in their youth. But we also have to recognize that when the Bible speaks of youth, uh, it's not letting those of you who have hit your 20s and beyond, or even your 30s or, uh, well, whatever, uh, beyond, uh, we're not off the hook here. uh, Because the contrast is is youth in terms of physical uh, ability, mental strength, uh, the, the... Uh, the peak of our capabilities. And often, honestly, that comes later in adulthood. We we really hit our stride, really are at our peak emotionally and physically and spiritually, uh, not necessarily even in our teen years. Uh, So the contrast here is not between those who are in their teens and those who are old, but those of us who still really have the strength of our abilities and those who have begun to hit the years of old age where those abilities perceptibly begin to decline. And so we need to recognize that we're not just talking to the youth group here. Uh, this includes the majority of you in this room when he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Now, having said that, there's no better time than the youngest days of our youth, when we are children, when we are in our teen years, to begin to remember our creator. Now, what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to remember our Creator? Well, it does not mean that we uh, are are going along one day and say, Oh, yes, there's there's a God in heaven. I'm glad I remembered that. Uh, But rather, it's the the, the biblical sense of the term to remember where, for instance, God says of his people, I will remember you. It's not that he'd forgotten about them and suddenly they came to mind one, one day but rather the sense of remembering them in order to continue to show to them his mercy and his saving grace. Well, to remember our creator means, and certainly in the context of Ecclesiastes, that we don't live life strictly under the sun. 
that we don't live life as practical atheists, as if God does not exist, as if we don't have to take him into the equation of our lives. To remember our creator, and certainly in the Old Testament and in a New Testament sense, means first of all, that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Because we remember, we recognize that God is there, that we are accountable to him, that we have sinned against him and fallen short of his glory, and we stand guilty before him and therefore under his judgment. And so it means to remember our creator, to trust in the Savior he has provided. Uh, Dear friends, you dare not uh, presume upon a deathbed conversion. I'll live my life the way I want to, and then when when I come to die, I will trust in Jesus. Absolutely foolish. You don't know when you will come to die. You do not know when you will stand before the judge of heaven and earth. And you dare not stand before him Christless, because you will not have any standing at all, other than that which merits the judgment of hell. And so you don't presume on a deathbed conversion. If you're in your childhood years, now is the time to recognize that you are answerable to your Creator and to trust in the Lord Jesus whom He has sent. If you are in your teen years, this is the time to commit yourself to Christ in faith and begin to follow Him in the way that you live. Maybe you became a Christian later in life. Well, this is the time. This is as young as you're ever going to be. Now is the time to remember your Creator in the days of your youth and believe in the Savior whom He has sent. But also to serve Christ, certainly to trust in Him, but also to serve Him. I've known people who have come to Christ in in later years, and while delighted that they've come to know the Savior in later years, nevertheless have have a twinge of regret for all of the years that were lost, all of the years that could have been used in the service of Christ, all of the years that could have been used to tell others about Christ. Well, God is sovereign. He saves you when he saves you, and you make the most of the years that he has put before you. But what a delight to know the Savior in your earliest years and have the strength of your youth in which to serve Christ, in which to live for his glory, in which to, as Paul says to Timothy, in which to store up treasures in heaven through the good works that you do in his name. We take the years God gives us, the years that are ahead of us, and we serve him in them. But what a blessing to be able to do that when you are in your childhood years, when you are in your teen years. And so to remember our creator remember to rem- is to remember that God is there and that we are accountable to him. And in his grace, he has provided for us a savior. Well, he can quickly moves on uh, after encouraging us to remember the Lord in the days of our youth uh, before, he says, the afflictions of old age come. So first, he speaks of the opportunity of youth. Second, the afflictions of old age. Now, here he goes on at some length. And you'll recall from our study of Ecclesiastes that a big difficulty for the preacher, for Kohelet, is that regardless of what we do with our lives, and remember he's primarily thinking of life under the sun, if we rule God out of the picture, if all we have is what we have in this world, he looks at life and regardless of how wise we become, how wealthy we become, how accomplished we become, death is the great equalizer. And that leads him, certainly on frequent occasions, to say vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's all meaningless. It's all a puff of breath. 
rich or poor, wise or foolish, it really doesn't matter because death takes it all away in the end anyway. That's life under the sun. And he goes on to contemplate here in a poetic way, a creative way, really, the, the physical decline that we all, if we live long enough, begin to experience. Look with me in verse 2, or actually the end of verse 1. Remember your Creator, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So generally, Kohelet, the preacher, describes this time as evil days, days in which he has no pleasure. But he's not content to leave it general. He goes on into some specifics. And specifically, he lists in a metaphorical way these ailments. Now, the metaphor here seems to be a house and those who inhabit the house, those who live there, together with the environs, what's outside the house. And each of these elements pretty obviously is intended to be a metaphor for something else for a particular bodily ailment. Now, we'll go through these and look at them, and we'll uh, assign somewhat tentatively uh, a meaning to them. Uh, We have to be a little bit tentative because he does not spell them out. Uh, Some are more clear than others, perhaps, uh, as he describes the the decline that we experience in old age. Verse 2, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, And the clouds return after the rain. The picture here is of a house. The storm has come. It's dark. It's rain. The wind is blowing. And instead of of the the, the light coming out, instead of the sun coming back out after the rain, and we've seen that, a thunderstorm comes through and it's very noisy and it pours, well, we would love to see this, it pours a lot of rain. But what happens? Well, eventually the clouds pass over, the sun begins to come out. It can be a very beautiful time after a storm. The air is clear, the light is clear, everything's crisp and sharp. The air has been cleansed by the rain and the light is beautiful after a storm. But look here in verse 2, the clouds return after the rain. One of the difficulties of growing older is there's not the prospect of things getting better. The thunderstorm has come, it's gotten dark, it's rained. But after the rain passes, there's only more clouds. Verse 3. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Now, the keepers of the house could be the, the, the owner uh, or guards, uh, referring uh, to guards or servants in the house. Uh, but they tremble, whether from fear of the storm, perhaps referring to the, uh, the tremble, the tremor that you sometimes see accompany old age, uh, the hands trembling. Strong men are bent. Again, the idea uh, of those who once had strong and healthy bodies now, now bent, uh, weakened with age. The grinders cease because they are few. Now, the picture in the house is the, the, the female servants who would grind grain in order to prepare flour. Well, we think of grinding uh, grain. It's not just the, the women do that with the machine, but we grind food with our teeth. And the, the uh, grinders cease because they are few, it's particularly in a day like theirs where medical or dental care was not uh, what it is today, the loss of teeth. Uh, he goes on to speak, uh, those who look through the windows are dimmed. Could be a a reference to the daughters of the home, women of leisure, who have the time simply to gaze out the window at the day, to look outside. 
but probably here metaphorically a reference for the decline of one's eyesight that comes with age. I recently had, uh, last week, had my vision checked, and, and uh, it's getting harder and harder to, um, to see the print here before me. It may not be too long before I'm having to, uh, to put on the glasses simply to be able to read the text. But as time goes on, the weakening of eyesight to the difficulty of seeing. Uh, verse 4, the doors on the street are shut. Openings, obviously passageway into the home. The word here is a dual, a two, uh, indicating perhaps speaking of two things here. And most likely the idea is that of our ears. The uh, decline in one's hearing that begins to come with old age. Uh, ironically enough, verse 4, one rises up at the sound of a bird. Uh, referring here to the restlessness, the sleeplessness that uh, those of age often experience, or light, light sleep, where they are easily awakened. Verse 4, all the daughters of song are brought low, uh, perhaps re- referring to the loss of uh, ability with the voice, or maybe again a reference to the loss of hearing. You can't hear people singing the way you once did. Verse 5, uh, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. Uh, perhaps referring here to a fear of falling, a fear of getting out, a fear of physical injury, uh, and breaking of bones and so forth. Uh, verse 5 again, the almond tree blossoms. Uh, going outside the house, the almond tree blossoms, and the blossoms of the almond, almond tree are silvery whitish color. The tree is covered in this silvery white Appearance and uh, obviously uh, they're a reference. Well, I mean, obviously, but it seems to be a reference to gray hair uh, as we get older. The graying of our hair. The grasshopper drags itself along. Uh, we think of a grasshopper with a great deal of energy, jumping, moving quickly. The grasshopper is just sort of crawling. And those uh, again, uh, once agile, quick, uh, mobile, uh, moving slowly. The the painful movements that accompany old age as well. And desire fails. Literally, and some translations render it this way, the caperberry is ineffective. Caperberry was seen as uh, an aphrodisiac, and apparently it no longer helped. Desire, the ESV just translates the meaning desire fails. Why? Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Uh, moving here more clearly to a direct reference to death. Death is the end. Death is what's coming. Verse 6, before, again, hearkening back to verse 1, remember your Creator before these things happen. The silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl is broken. It could be that these two accompany each other, the cord being a a, a suspension for a lamp. Uh, There's a reference in Zechariah to a bowl that seems to be a lamp. Whether that's the case or not, uh, things of value that uh, break and are therefore destroyed, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, uh, whether no longer uh, whether no longer able to go to the to the fountain, to the cistern, to retrieve water for life, and these things have fallen into disuse, or simply reference the loss of water, uh, no longer uh, representing life, no longer alive, uh, somewhat uncertain. But verse 7 is very clear. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to the God who gave it. 
reference to Genesis 2 and 3 where God creates us from the dust, created man from the dust, breathed life into him. And then um, in Genesis 3 with sin in the world and the curse that God gives, dust you are and to dust you shall return. And the reference there probably is not the hopeful one of the spirit going to be with the Lord in heaven, but simply uh, God gave life and God has taken it away. So a very strong image of death. And what's his response? Well, not surprisingly, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. His comment, death, again, renders everything meaningless. Now, we need to take seriously what he's dealing with here. And some of you know firsthand the kinds of things that Kohelet addresses here, the difficulties that come as we age. One, we need to be sensitive. We who are not there to those who are there uh, to assist, to minister, to encourage. Um, it is a depressing and oblique picture as Kohelet gives it. The preacher gives it here, but we shouldn't be surprised at that. Uh, but that is the experience that many are going through now that we all will if we live long enough, more than likely. In my family, we have a letter that uh, was written by my great-grandmother to my grandmother uh, a day before her birthday. And in the letter, she thanks her uh, for her good care for her, for taking care of her, looking after her. Uh, She says, I can never thank you enough. And she writes, I hope you have many more birthdays, but old age is nothing to look forward to. With lots of love and thanks, Mother. The date of this letter was June 24th, 1976. My great-grandmother who wrote this was 97 years old. Her daughter, my grandmother, to whom she wrote it, was a day before her 71st birthday. And my great-grandmother, or rather my grandmother, went on to live until she was 93. She had both of her legs amputated because of circulatory problems. And as I read that, I can't help but think that my great-grandmother, who was a believer, a very godly woman, does sound a little bit like the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Old age is nothing to look forward to. But that aside, the Bible's portrayal of old age is not as negative, not as bleak as Kohelet makes it out to be. And in fact, there are some advantages to growing old, particularly growing old in Christ, not the least of which is the wisdom that comes with age and experience. Some of you who are of many years probably often feel like you're having that deja vu experience. You've seen it before. You've seen this come before. You've seen this go before. You've lived long enough not to panic at every headline in the news. You've lived through hard times and lived to tell about it. You've been there. You've got the wisdom that comes from age and experience, and that wisdom is of tremendous value even if our society, which is so enamored with new, bigger, better, doesn't recognize it. You have a reservoir of wisdom that is of great value to those who will listen to you. You also, biblically, have a place of honor. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. So the biblical view is not as bleak as Ecclesiastes makes it out to be, although it does have its moments, as my great-grandmother reminded my grandmother. The difficulties are there, but there are advantages there as well. So the opportunity of youth, the afflictions of old age, and then finally he concludes, as the wisdom book ought to conclude, with the value of wisdom. Look at verses 9 through 14. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Now, the preacher here is described as a sage, as a wise man, and he indicates here the value of wisdom, particularly as he chooses to express it carefully, selecting words carefully. Look, it says he taught the people, not uh, surprising that a wise man would pass his teaching on to others, teaching them knowledge. He formulated proverbs, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. You know, knowledge to be passed on well needs to be packaged. You can't just just spill the contents of everything you know. It needs to be organized. It needs to be packaged. It needs to be put in ways that are memorable. And Proverbs are a great way to package wisdom. That's why we love reading the Proverbs, isn't it, in the Bible? Because each verse is, is a goldmine of wisdom in just a few words. They're pithy. They're epigrammatic statements, concise, cleverly worded, easy to remember. And the preacher worked at teaching in these kinds of ways with these kinds of proverbs. Certainly we have others. We, we might say, you know, we have an English proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Easily worded, easy to remember. Uh, when Paul wrote to Timothy, although he didn't use these words, uh, the NIV, I think, expresses it very well when it translates in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Well put, well said, easy to remember. So he formulated Proverbs. He chose his words carefully. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. J.B. Phillips describes having the right words this way. And some of you are teachers in this church or teach in school. And uh, it's worth remembering what he says. He says, J.B. Phillips, uh, the Phillips translation and so forth. He says, if words are to enter men's hearts and bear fruit, they must be the right words shaped to pass men's defenses and explode silently and effectually in their minds. Those are the kinds of words that he looked for. The words of the wise are like goads, verse 11, like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. The idea here of a stick with a, with a goad or a nail in it to help move sheep along, to help herd animals along. And he says the words of the wise are like that when they're packaged, when they're given in proverbial form. They, they have a way of getting under the skin. They have a way of uh, implanting themselves in our minds and we can't get them out and we think about them. And they eventually, because they affect our thinking, affect the way that we live. And so they're like goads, they're like prods that push us on. However, every student, everyone who's ever been a student knows this well. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. There's value in gaining wisdom. There's value in gaining knowledge to have wisdom. But there is a kind of, uh, of searching for knowledge that is not valuable. Uh, an endless pursuit of knowledge, particularly when we never settle, when we never come to a knowledge of the truth, when we never arrive at, at clearly defined convictions. But it's certainly also true that, uh, that a lot of study, a lot of reading is very wearisome to the flesh. Of making many books, there is no end. If that was true then, how much more so today? There's no way to read all of the books that come out. No one can read that fast. No one 
can, uh, can, can, can get that many books. But the good news is, to be wise and knowledge, knowledgeable, we don't have to. We don't have to read everything that comes out. No way we could, but you don't have to, to be a wise and knowledgeable and well-informed person. In fact, it's probably better to read fewer books, well-chosen, and digest them thoroughly than to skim over ten times as many books. Jonathan Edwards, the preacher and theologian of colonial America, at his death, apart from his own writings and published works, had in his library some, how many would you guess? A thousand, two thousand? Had in his library some 300 books. And yet he was probably one of the greatest thinkers that the, certainly the North American continent has produced, perhaps the greatest of his day. Maybe that's why he had the time to do his own thinking and writing and working, because he wasn't spending all of his time reading what other people had to say. Although the books he had were good, and he interacted with them and knew them well. Above all, know the Bible. Don't read books about the Bible without reading the Bible. Know the Bible, because it is the treasures of, of God's wisdom for us in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes, verse 13 and 14, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. If we were to look at this from a New Covenant, New Testament perspective, uh, where the men ask Jesus, what, what does God require of us? What work does he require of us? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Because it's Jesus who is the one who has obeyed the law of God for us perfectly and completed our whole duty for us perfectly. Nevertheless, as those in Christ, we are to fear God. We are to keep his commandments. Why? Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Every secret thing. Remember, Jesus said that we will be judged by, for every careless word that we have spoken in, in Matthew twelve thirty six. Well, Ecclesiastes takes a hard look at life under the sun. It looks at life from a secular point of view, not necessarily an atheistic point of view. God is sometimes reckoned into the picture, but... The struggle of Ecclesiastes is with those times when God seems distant, when he seems unconcerned, when, when wickedness seems to prosper often at the expense of righteousness, when God's ways are beyond finding out. Life under the sun is bleak, and this book is a challenge to the secularist. It is a challenge to the materialist, challenging them with that bleakness. And just as the purpose of God's law is to drive us to Christ, through impressing upon us our guilt before a holy God, a book like Ecclesiastes has as its purpose to drive us to Christ as we recognize the futility of life, the futility of our lives, apart from God, apart from Christ. Because if we admit it, we long for more than just a few decades of life under the sun. And the good news is that the one who lives above the sun came down here under the sun and lived with us. And he bore our guilt on the cross, and he lived in obedience under God's law, and he rose from the dead. And as Ecclesiastes itself tells us, God has put eternity in our hearts. And Jesus, whose birth we celebrate in just a couple of weeks, Jesus has made it possible for all who believe in him to experience that eternity with him in glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we...
thank you for this book, a very challenging book in many ways. And yet, Father, it exposes not only our own hearts, but it also allows us to see, Lord, where so many are around us who do not know Christ, who do lead lives of quiet desperation and futility. But, Father, we pray that this message of Ecclesiastes would, in fact, drive us all the more to Jesus, in whom no labor, in whom no work, in whom no life, in whom no suffering is in vain. And we pray in his name. Amen.